Welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 26th of January with me, Ian Welsh. A few weeks ago, I spoke with Matthew Hawthorne and Luca Mosca at Qantas about how they are seeing circular models developing in the apparel sector. First though, we have the next in our series of Voices from the Factory interviews with Innovation Forum's Savannah Razak. She spoke with Atik Ur Rahman, Compliance Manager at Manufacturer Interloop in Pakistan. No news this week, that will be back next time. Hi Atik, can you introduce yourself and what is your role, where are you based and what does Interloop produce? I'm Atik Rahman and it's about 18 years for being the part of Interloop. Currently, basically my focus is the compliance, workers' well-being and the health and safety. In my current role, I am appointed in the one of the largest manufacturing unit of the company, having more than 8,500 employees. And in my current job, my primary focus is that effective implementation of the company policies, procedures, and ensuring the adherence of the customer code of conduct, compliance certificates, and the legal obligations pertaining to the employees' rights. Interloops is a vertically integrated apparel manufacturer with have a diverse range of products that includes the hosiery, denims, knitted apparel, and the streamlined, seamless activewear, with a dedicated work of 30,000 plus employees. We have built our company by investing in our people, process, and commitment to the responsible manufacturing practices. We are Pakistan's largest listed apparel company with manufacturing in Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and China, and sales offices in North America, New Europe, and Japan. Can we dive a bit deeper into what measures Interloop has taken to improve workers' conditions and livelihoods in the past few mm-hmm. years? Interloop has been firm in its commitment in improving the well-being and safety of our people. We have very clear policies and procedures which ensure compliance with all local laws and international best practices. We have a central as well as location-based compliance teams. This ensures adherence to our relevant laws and the codex. As, as I told you that I am the one of the part of the location team who is responsible for the compliance of the code of conduct and the company policies. Interloop is the member of Sustainable Apparel Coalition, that is called in short SAC, and all our labor locations have verified scores for our social and environmental performance, with a score range between 90 and 95% the social side. In addition to this, we have recently joined the Better World. Our sites have achieved some of the highest scores in the country. In 2020, our Hosey Division 2, the, the where I am located in my plant, got Fair Trade certified, becoming the first SOX facility in the world with these certifications. Since the certification, the program has generated more than 7. approximate 7.7 million in community development funds, which over approximate 8,000 employees benefiting in every disbursement activity from the program. In recent years, Interloop has taken several measures to enhance, enhance workers' conditions and livelihood through wage increases, comprehensive welfare programs, skill developments, well-being programs, and more. There's a lots of things that we can share with you, but some of them I can elaborate with you. That one of the uh, key program is the DE and IF, that is actually diversity and inclusion program. We are the signatory to the UN, UN Women's Empowerment Principles. We have set ourselves clear D and I goals and our advancing equity within the organization and in our communities too. We have zero tolerance 
on workplace harassment and have enterprise as well as regional harassment committees. There are two types of committees, regional and enterprise harassment committees. These committees address the grievances and complaints regarding the harassment. In addition, we have the working on creating awareness around gender-based violence and harassment and have been conducting various gender sensitization trainings for our workforce. That was about the harassment, that was about the safety of women. And one more thing is the skill development of our employees. We are investing in, it in our employees in their skills and developing and development by offering market-based benefits and on-the-job trainings. We have our own in-house technical training center. That's a big technical training schools for our new joiners at multiple locations to train our workforce as knitting operators, seeing operators, and the more. It's actually, the knitting operator and sitting was our the direct employees who has to be trained, who has to be the work on the machines. All these press persons are trained through the, our technical training tools. The company has established a range of employees' welfare schemes also, including their gratuity, their private funds, health care with the insurance scholarships for employees' children, special assistance for non-executive staff that also covers their marriages, their expenses that can be cut for their marriages, health expenses and educations. We provide free of cost transport services, subsidized meals, and all these programs contribute to our overall well-being of our workforce. These are the few things from a large number of layers that I immediately that I can share with you. Thinking about your relationship with brand clients, what works well? Like, what are they doing that's useful to you? And what can they do perhaps to further support you to continue these initiatives to support workers' well-being? Brands play a very, very vital role. This is actually the collaboration. We have the collaborative partnership with brands and the combination of local laws, company policies, and brands that help us and that play a pivotal role in improving workers' well-being and achieving shared goals. As concerned of the brands, majority of our brands' partners have stringent code of conduct with a clear focus on health and safety, working conditions, and fair wages. In addition, our partners have launched various programs for further engaging our people. We have partnered with various brands, including, this is in Urdu, Hamari Awas, with Target Corporation, Benefits for Business and Workers program with Amazon, and Levi's Hands. Hands is actually the program, H-A-N-D, Hands, Workers' Wellbeing Initiatives. You know, these are the three major programs, just, just taking as an example with you. Just to further explain these, what are these programs, like Hamari Awas, we can translate in English, that's our voice, I mean, workers' voice, that we are collaborating with the targets. This project focuses on the grievance handling and includes a training for 600 workers plus 30 management managers, including master training nominated by the Interloop to further train workers on grievance launching procedure. That is actually the program of train of the training trainers on the grievance handling systems. We are doing this with the collaboration with the targets. And second program that we are doing with the coordination of Amazon, basically interloops. This program impacts has led various HR interventions at improving employees' well-being, work-life balance, quality, and the profitability. Initiative includes tracking absenteeism and employee migration streamline, lining leaves approval process, establishing workplace guidelines, and addressing the discrimination and harassment. That, that is a multi-purpose program we are doing with the help of the Amazon. And third pro- program that I uh, shared with you, that was the, with the help of, that is about the hands with the coordination with the Levi's customer. This program aims for the partnership was to improve life of the women and women who are the architect of products and brand value. 
it is factory based program to address issues related to the workers health safety and life saving and family well being based on our baseline surveys we have found that only a third of females workers are able to take their substantial meals per day because of hands workers well being education survey respondent shares that we have been guided on health and nutrition by hands staff and we are very thankful to hands because we have learned a lot and will practice in our lives so this is about the major three programs we are doing with our customers that is hamari awas and business and workplace programs and levis hands with the levis now thinking about the policy aspect and how crucial policy is in ensuring workers well-being what are your thoughts on the current legislations and policies in pakistan to safeguard workers in the textiles industry current regulations in pakistan plus customer code of conduct and interloop policies have very clear focus on the prioritizing workers well-being and safety a combination of all three things is the actual focus on the well-being of the safety well-being and safety of our employees for example our local laws require the provision of child care centers at factory side mean that is actually law law said if you have the 50 plus women you have to establish a child care this is law and what company is doing company is not only complying the local law but has gone beyond compliance to provide world class daycare center actually we don't call it daycare center it is for us it is love and love center that is beyond legal requirements and these are available in all our sites and free of cost for not only executive staff lies but also the non executive mean workers also uh, it is a journey and we look for ways to continuously improve the well being of our employees pakistan's new legislation has provided paternity leave previously that we only have the maternity leave in females but not for the male employees no this change in legislation of pakistan and they provided the paternity leaves for the for our employees for our male employees this same thing is immediately implemented by our company additionally the government of pakistan recently announced the creation of national compliance center this will be a central body with representation from the government international agencies like iilo and manufacturers who will provide a framework for improved governance and regulation of the compliance activities we are hopeful there will be improved monitoring and implementation of safety requirements and workers rights which will shine light on pakistan as a safe ethical and transparent destination for brands and the retailers also thank you for taking the time out of your day to share with us thank you so much thank you I recently had a conversation with Matthew Hawthorne, a foot printing and circularity expert, and Luca Mosca, fashion and sporting goods lead in Italy from Qantas. We talked about emerging circular economy models in the apparel sector. Luca, how do you characterize the transition from linear to circular business models right now? First of all, we need to understand a circular strategy probably would not look the same for every brand, right? especially in a very variable kind of market like the luxury fashion and sporting good market like the one we work in there is a lot of brands that that do a lot of different things right from products from different usps and different business models so we need to understand that having a circular approach is not a one size fit all kind of approach but it's all about like following some guiding principles so how to keep materials how to keep products to the maximum value possible within the market so in that sense a circular approach for a luxury brand that makes like leather goods like bags and shoes will look very different from a sporting goods brand that makes next to skin kind of products right so one would want to focus more on retaining that value 
of that product as long as possible and maximizing that value during a product life cycle through repair propositions or through resale propositions and so on, while a sporting goods brand will have to face the technical usage of a product over time and might want to focus on understanding better how to get into the recycling game to recover those materials at the end of life to the, to the max extent possible. So again, you would need to understand what is your value proposition and how those circular principles would fit within your value proposition. And I think the most important thing is that you need to understand and plan for circularity holistically as part of your main business strategy. Otherwise, it will never succeed, right? So we have seen a lot of initiatives in the circularity space that usually are left off a silo approach, a silo program. But if you don't have that vision of how the learnings of these pilots, which aren't anyways necessary, but how eventually these learnings, these propositions that you set out in the market, how they would help transform your key business operations, most likely they will die in the, in the short term. One other thing I'd like to add to this is that when we think historically about what the circular transition would look like, a lot of brands have jumped directly into resale as their default mode for circular business. And what Luca touched on there is a really important point, which is that this may not necessarily be feasible for all brands, for consumers and for the overall fashion and sporting goods landscape. It's important to note that each one of these circular business models, including textile to textile or cycling, has a role to play in the transition. And it's the only way that we're going to get all brands on board with the circular future. So really want to highlight that this is a tailored approach and it needs to be a tailored approach based on the product mix. It's clear that certain goods will be attract certain types of models, luxury goods versus sporting goods. There's a very clear distinction, of course. And let's come to some of those distinctions as we go. Matt, perhaps you can carry on the conversation by giving us some insight into what these transitions look like in practice. The transition must start with an initial assessment of your portfolio and a set of KPIs that a brand is going to be able to look at over time to track progress. So this initial state of play assessment is really critical as the first step, because as we've talked about, the solution depends on product mix. And we want to make sure that brands are taking a look at both the environmental and business implications of various circular business models. We need to be able to take the same amount of intention with circular strategies as businesses have done for decades or centuries with traditional linear models. Oftentimes, we see that these pilots fail at the pilot stage because there is a lack of intention put behind them. These linear models have decades of experience behind them to, to maximize profitability. What we're lacking with the circular transition is that intention to start. So once we've done an initial state of play assessment and we've assessed what arena a brand should focus on, it's then important for them to build the transition from the ground up. Step two is once you know if we are going into repair and resale or into textile to textile recycling, these have to then start at the design stage if we're going to actually look at scaling this transition. The second step after understanding where you're going to play is, is how you're going to get there. Looking at product design to understand if we're looking at textile textile recycling, how do we focus on designing for recyclability? Whereas if we're going towards repairability and resale, we want to understand how we can make products as durable as possible. And so that's step two. We can do things at the pilot scale with products that are already out in the market, but we need to be able to make sure that products that are produced moving forward allow for maximizing these systems. 
Then the third step is finding partners who can help you meet the ambition you have set. After we focus on everything that we can do in-house, it's really difficult for every brand to be able to do all things related to their circular transition. And there are some really great partners out there in the market already. Really understanding what can you do in-house versus what do you need to take outside and use third-party vendors to help support your mission. And all of that, again, goes back to what's your ambition? What does success look like for your brand is really important to define before you select the right partner for you. And then lastly, and this is definitely the hardest one, is investing for the long run. There are many pilots out there. You can use this to prove the concept of the logistics system around it or the technology around your platform. But it's really difficult to see an accurate picture of what circularity looks like as an integrated part of your business strategy without investing for the long run and doing work to scale it with your business. If I may add on one point on the eco-design part, I think when we talk about circularity within the design system, we add usually one element to the eco-design equation. Because when we talk about circularity, we don't only focus on what are so-called material concepts, so how to replace conventional material with lower impact ones, but we also think about product concepts. Again, durability, reparability, recyclability concepts are product concepts because they are about how a whole product is designed. And in this phase, you really need to design with intent. But that intent can only be given if you understand what is the purpose of the product throughout its life cycle and at the end of life. And again, this is how it connects back to what is the approach that your brand has on circularity based on its unique value proposition. Let's look at some of the specific value models then that are required. You've referenced already the difference between luxury goods and the perhaps sporting apparel products. Perhaps just take us through some of the different value propositions that are required in these different areas. First of all, we need to go back to the guiding principle, right? So what are the guiding principles behind these value propositions? And usually this guiding principle within the circularity system is how do we keep products and material in play for the longest time possible to reduce the need for new resources? So this is what always has to be in the back of our mind. If you follow these principles, you will end up to those value propositions that we now are kind of familiar with. Take-back schemes to ensure that the product is returned at the end of life. Second-hand and resale to ensure, again, to maximize the value of the product through multiple lives. Rental, you take out ownership from that equation completely and then just offer the product as a service instead as something that is owned by the consumer. And recycling, of course. Going back to the example of luxury versus sporting goods, there are some product types and some product categories that are more suited to some value propositions than others. We talked about the very expensive letter good of a luxury product. That product will probably retain a lot of value throughout its whole life cycle, right? The whole lifetime of that product. So you would want to maximize those revenue streams by using a multiplier, making sure that that product is put back in the market as many times as possible. Also, because most likely the quality and the durability of that product, again, going back to design, will be set in that way. More basic products next to skin or things like that, uh, maybe they don't retain as much value during their lifetime through their life cycle. So what you would want to do is to, first of all, again, think and design, how can I recover the materials 
these products are made with at the end of life and set up then the right infrastructure through recycling systems. First of all, they take back sorting and then recycling systems so that I can use that material back into the supply chain to make new products again. But to what extent is all of this about decoupling growth from virgin resource use? Conventionally speaking, circularity has always been talked about in sort of a, a material recovery lens. But I want to challenge that for fashion and sporting goods companies especially, the idea of circularity needs to go beyond decoupling from virgin resource use to decoupling from traditional production cycles altogether. And I think we understand that raw materials at the fiber or polymer level, those tier three, tier four levels, are typically less than 20% of a product's overall impact. If we look at just textile, the textile recycling as the end-all be-all of your circular strategy, you're very limited in, in terms of the reduction potential that you could get compared to a resale, reuse, or repair dimension. It needs to be a tailored approach that uses a mixture of all of these, right? Because not every product can be resold or repaired. And even those who can cannot be done infinitely. There will be an end of life that will come across for the product. And so materials recovery does need to be a part of it. But in terms of growth decoupling, this is a really important piece to the circularity equation that in concept works really well, but it has been very difficult to come to realization for brands to see how this actually happens. This comes to the idea of the substitution rate or replacement rate of these circular business models. The important point here to note is that there's no way to prove environmental benefit of a circular business model if the system is purely additive. To date, most circular models are pilots or they're small scale, and they are just off to the side of a brand's strategy and are therefore just additive to their standard linear production cycles that they do year in and year out. In order to see circularity work towards their climate targets or water targets or biodiversity targets that a brand may have in terms of actually reducing their environmental impact because they work in the circularity landscape, we must see these models replace the economic demand for new products. And yes, the onus is on consumers to some extent, but also it is on brands to ensure that they're investing properly and they're working with consumers to bring them along the journey. You know, I think it's fair to say that at this point, we've captured most of the first movers from the consumer standpoint in terms of who is most willing to go out of their way to work within resale and rental and repair models. But to get the average consumer on board, a lot more investment needs to be done to ensure that we are taking away. And then lastly, it's on the brands to then see when circularity is gaining traction, taking the next step to say, okay, how are we going to start to use that to replace our growth models that we had set up for production. So it's kind of a, a two-pronged approach. And I would say that virgin resource use is one part of it, but ultimately we need to look at the system as a whole and how it works towards all production rather than just the use of virgin resources. Luca, you want to come in? Yeah, just to make it very concrete on this idea of replacement rate, because I don't know if you know, Vinted is a secondhand platform, especially popular here in Europe. And they did this study to understand what is the environmental benefit of all the products that they put back into the market. And one of these key elements was this replacement rate. Uh, what they did to uh, analyze the replacement rate was to ask their user, so sort of the consumer, 
if the products that they bought actually replaced the need for them to buy a new product. This happened on 37% of the cases. Only one out of three pretty much purchases in this case replaced the need of a new product, right? And again, I think once you start tracking these KPIs from an environmental perspective, then you can also understand how to further incentivize and maximize the environmental benefit of these value propositions. Yeah, and ThreadUp and Depop have all put out their own calculated replacement rates based on surveys that they've put out to their customers. And they range anywhere from the 37% from Vinted up to, I believe, 86% or somewhere in that range for Depop. You can see that the range is, is vast. And from our experience, incorporating this parameter into the environmental assessments of different models we know that it does have an impact on the extent of environmental impact reduction that's possible. We can see reductions that are statistically significant end up disappearing altogether when replacement rate drops below 50%. It's really critical to track this metric especially and understand how you can maximize it with your consumers from the brand perspective. Luca, I wonder if you could just run through any further sector-specific challenges there are for apparel. Starting from the consumer and the consumer experience, most importantly, I think we underestimate the importance to invest resources in educating consumers in changing their behavior and explaining what these value propositions are instead of focusing directly on conversion when we set out these business models. Just an example of when I was actually working on the brand side, when we were setting out a rental proposition for outdoor and we were talking with the digital activation team, they estimated that we needed 10 times the marketing budget that we had at the time for people to even understand at first what the value proposition was about. Because it was so unique, because it's new, because consumers don't understand it at first, right? It's, it's drastic consumer behavior that we need to change. So consumer first. Operational, I would say second, supply chains are historically been set up to follow a linear model. When we talk about circularity, supply chains also have to be rethought. Besides the infrastructure that is needed to recover products at the end of life and recover resources and materials to put them back into the market. But also once those materials have been recovered, it wouldn't make sense to get them in Europe and send them back to Southeast Asia to start the cycle again. There has to be an idea on how to bring regionalized model again for, for supply chain. Of course, it's gonna take very long, it's gonna take decades, but we have to start thinking in that direction. And third is on the financial element. All these different models have very low profitability usually compared to the usual linear models. And that is given to the need of for new technologies uh, most likely to make things work at scale when it comes to, to implementing these business models, right? To facilitate the unique economics of these models. Just think about when you take back a product and you want to put it back in the market, how much it costs for a person to take it back, visualize it, see if there is any problems, see if the quality is good enough, clean it, put it back, take pictures. Everything is done individually, product by product. And that, of course, admins a lot of costs. So technologies is not there yet to somehow make these things work at scale in a profitable fashion. I wonder then, Matt, if you could comment then on the shifts that the sector has to make to achieve over the challenges that Luca's just highlighted. What are the key shifts for the apparel sector? 
I'll start with the technology piece where Luca left off. Sorting, cleaning technology, how do we automate the merchandising process to A, improve quality of the merchandising, how we take pictures of garments, how we post them, how consumers interact with them. I think that that is a really important piece to the technology side, in addition to efficiency increases in sorting and cleaning. I think that that is first and foremost, when we talk about long-term financial sustainability of these programs and these business models, that is the key shift. But in terms of where brands have the most ability to make moves now, two other shifts are omni-channel approaches to their circular business models and regionalization of their systems. So from the omni-channel approach, we want to make sure that the circular business model is as equally accessible as linear models. So how do we go through an omni-channel approach so that the same way a consumer would interact with a linear model, they can do so with circular, whether that be digital or even in-person in in-store retail. A lot of times for consumers outside of the first mover category, the difficulty is they can't imagine what a used garment looks like other than what they picture being the classic consignment store context where things aren't sorted, they aren't cleaned, they're just taken in and then put on a rack. It's hard for a consumer to understand what a refurbished product might look like. Can we look at in-store retail as an opportunity to give consumers the chance to see used garments right next to new ones and say, oh, this one will serve the purpose the same way that a new one would. And oh, by the way, it's 30 or 40% cheaper, right? Like how can we provide them that ability to make a decision for themselves in a way that's more tangible than the digital context that circular models currently operate on? And then the regionalization one is really critical, both from an environmental reduction perspective, as well as a cost perspective. Right now, there's a tremendous amount of resources going into centralized sortation, centralized distribution of these circular or, or used products. And so understanding how we can provide collection, sortation, cleaning, and even repair within a reasonable range of its next destination, I think is a really critical shift that needs to occur. How do we upskill labor forces in regions that have not done traditional textile processes in many years and decades or, or even centuries? You know, how do we bring it back to the local communities and to the communities in which these products are sold and exchanged in, I think is a really critical piece where the sector can shift. We've done a tremendous amount of work to centralize production over the last four or five decades. And I think we need to do equally as much work to decentralize it again in the circular context when we're looking at used products. We've talked quite a lot about how important consumers are here and consumer opinions and views and behaviors shifting from linear to circular. Are there any other specific shifts that, Matt, that you think that consumers need to make? What's the role of business to try and inspire those? The key piece here is that there is a role for business to play, a key role for them to play to make sure that this transition occurs with consumers. On the consumer front, to start there, buying timeless is one of the most critical transitions that you can make. And try to explore resale channels for the clothes you don't wear anymore. The Trove founder, I think, says it best where he says the inventory for circular business models is in everyone's closet. That is true. I think a lot of consumers have products in their closets that they don't wear and they don't realize that it could be doing something for someone else. Someone else may treasure it more than they do if, if it's truly just sitting in their closet. But I would say with those two shifts requires brands to produce timeless products 
and make it easy for consumers to sell their products through their resale channels or do take back programs that are not cumbersome to engage with. It's really easy to say that, oh, we have these platforms out here and consumers aren't using them, but how easy is it for them to engage with those? Does it require going onto the website ahead of time to figure out what can and can't be returned as part of a take back program? You know, do they need to do research or, or can they just say, hey, I'm going to bring in this bag of clothes and they're going to do the sorting for me? Again, all of these have economic implications as well. It takes this multifaceted approach and this intentional system level design to ensure that consumers can be brought in on this transition. I mean, it's all very well to talk about trying to inspire consumers to buy Timeless. As you say, it requires the brands to make that, uh, make those products. And that then, of course, gets us back to the old problem around, well, the whole fashion sector, particularly the fast fashion sector, its model is around consumers buying something now and then buying something again in a few months' time and then buying something again. How can we break that cycle? Tapping into circularity doesn't mean not looking into newness. The thing is, we have to rethink newness. What does newness mean? For the brand, newness means like making new things every season. Maybe from a consumer perspective, newness means I'm seeing something new now, but that thing doesn't necessarily need to be created. I think newness can be brought to the table by bringing back or like continuously making circulating these products that have already been created. And that's why, for example, value propositions like rental, a subscription rental, bring the, this newness element to life quite prominently, right? So the idea of having a new outfit every month or like several new outfits every quarter and so on and so forth, taking away the burden of ownership. So you don't have to worry again of what you do with the old stuff that is not new anymore to you, right? So I think that element of newness can remain with its circularity, always looking at the environmental impact of the business proposition that you're putting out in the market, of course. But it doesn't necessarily mean building or creating new stuff every couple of weeks. And to that point, I think retained value or perceived value is the other critical side to this, that typically that fast fashion mindset, there's a lot of purchases that occur, but the perceived value of those products from the consumer side is also low. They purchase it recognizing they're going to wear it once, twice, maybe three times and then it's over. Is there a way for brands with higher perceived value to step in and engage those consumers from a more accessible lens because they have products that are matching similarly with the fast fashion approach, even though they're much higher quality because it's it's a second life or it's a third life of that product. If you can look at it from a consumer engagement side, bringing in new segments of the market that you haven't been able to touch before, there is a, a possibility that you can start to take demand from the fast fashion part of the market and bring it into the more higher value side of the market just through having these models and being accessible to consumers. It strikes me that this is an area where regulation can play a key role, just to nudge markets in a different directions. Luca, do you have any sense as to what regulation can do well here, and perhaps particularly within the EU context? I think the EU is moving fast in that context. So there's three key directives that have come out or are coming out now in the different EU countries. The first one is the extended produce responsibility, so-called EPR. And the EPR pretty much will set all the brands that will sell products in the EU countries to, to pay taxes pretty much for, for every product they put into the market, to take ownership of the products that they put into the market. But these taxes could be modulated 
if the product is designed following specific requirements. And we go back to the designs elements, right? So if the product has a recycled content rather than being built according to certain durability elements or reparability or recyclability elements and so on. So you can lower your taxes if you can prove that you've built your products according to these eco-design requirements. The second one, which is exactly connected to this point, is the eco-design for sustainable product and textile, the so-called ESPR. And what the SPR will do, it will set minimum eco-design guidelines for brands that will have to be introduced at the product level. And again, it will be on material, but also on the circular design concepts, durability and repairability. But most importantly, the ESPR will introduce the idea of digital product passport so that every product will need to have this digital passport that will show different steps of where the product has been produced, where the materials come from, and all these nice traceability and transparency elements but would also potentially be used to create even more touch points and connections with consumers throughout the whole life cycle of a product. So it could be used in implementing and leveraging these circular business models through different touch points and facilitate the end of life process, right? So imagine that now a sorting facility or a recycler through the digital product passport will know exactly the material composition of the product that could handle that product accordingly. And the last piece that is going to be very important is the waste framework directive, specifically for textile. What this directive will say is that all countries by 1st of Jan 2025 will have to have at municipality level the infrastructure needed for a take-back scheme pretty much for all textiles. So similar to what we have in plastics in many countries, the same will come for textiles. So consumers can give back textiles at the end of life and there will be the needed infrastructure to sort these elements at first, these products at first, and then understand how to put them back in the market, either at a product or a material level. And we connect back to the EPR because the taxes paid by the EPR will be needed to actually finance this infrastructure. So that's why there is like these nice cycles of the three directives that play with each other. Given the challenges that we've been discussing and given where we are, to what extent do you think that efforts should focus on a step-by-step process of improvement now? In other words, not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. Matt? A step-by-step approach is kind of the only way possible to do this correctly. As we've said, starting at the top, to go through this transition properly, it's going to take intention. It's going to take a level of commitment from brands to do this properly and, and go on this journey, take a holistic approach. Linear business models have decades or or centuries of a head start on circular models when it comes to maximizing efficiencies and, and ensuring profitability and business sustainability. Planning is really critical for the circular business models to ensure that we are getting off on the right foot and that we are starting down our journey of working towards efficiencies and long-term sustainability of these programs. Step-by-step is the only way to get there, starting with understanding where your brand should position itself within the circular context, and then what is its ambition to get there, starting there, working through design, and just slowly but surely working their way through. I fully agree with Matt. No one can figure this thing out from the get-go and get everything perfect in the market. At first, you need to start somewhere and you need to learn, you need to iterate your value proposition. You need to understand also, again, how consumers will react to the different propositions that you put out in the market. 
The important thing, though, is that these pilots are not left to themselves. So they need to be part of a bigger vision, a bigger approach, a bigger strategy. You need to have a polar star, a guiding star that tells you where these pilots will actually evolve. And maybe on that side, a shout out that I wanted to make is to all the professionals that work within brands and are tirelessly fighting every day to start these pilots and to put these pilots to life. Because what they're actually doing, they're fighting against the organization that has been set into being a linear model since decades. So, you know, pilots are definitely important and are fundamental, but they need to be integrated into this wider strategy and this wider approach that has to be set. Well, thank you. It's, it's been a fascinating conversation. It really does feel that there is the potential to move from the why to the how for circular business model. Thank you for taking through, through so many of them. Luca Mosca and Matt Hawthorne from Contest. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. We've recently published the audio and video recordings from our recent Big Debate webinar where we discussed the EU's deforestation regulation. It was our most popular ever webinar and the expert panellists from the European Commission, Pam Oil Business was a mass and IDH were very insightful. So it's well worth a listen or a watch. That's it for now though. I've been Ian Welsh and until next time, goodbye. Mm-hmm.